Good morning, DJ and PK. It's 97.5 and 12.80 The Zone. Welcome in on a Friday morning. We have got a lot to get to. We've got uh, jazz for you. We've got cougars. We've got youths. We've got it all. Uh, PK and I had Matt George on. Uh, he does Locked on Kings for Locked on Podcast for David Locke. Hassan Whiteside. What does he bring to the Jazz? What's he got left in the tank? How good can he be? Statistically, uh, last year was not good. It didn't look anything like Portland two years ago or Miami three years ago. So what's he got left in the tank? Uh, Here is Matt George, Locked on Kings with DJ and PK. Matt, good morning. DJ, PK, what's up? Greetings from uh, Sacramento where it's way too hot and there's still nothing to do. (laughs) Long time ago, Matt. I used to work in Sacramento. KOVR. And, uh, KOVR and you got out, huh? I and did. You got out. I was assisted in my departure, if you know what I mean. Uh-huh. <laughs> but it worked out. So uh, we're curious here. Hassan Whiteside coming to the Jazz and a quick look at his stats and what happened. Uh, he'd been a starter most of his career. He barely started and he only played 36 games. His playing time was cut in half. A lot of the stats fell because of the playing time, but stuff like his shooting percentage was down several points. What what was going on? Hassan Whiteside's the purpose of Hassan Whiteside in Sacramento was never remotely clear to begin with. I remember when we heard rumors last offseason that the Kings were potentially targeting him and everybody was just kind of looking around wondering why. Uh, and then uh, thankfully when, when the Kings did sign him, it was only for a, a minimum deal. So it wasn't for the money that initially we, we thought that Hassan Whiteside was going to command on the market. But it was a mixture of a lot of things. It was a mixture of Rashawn Holmes continuing to play very, very well at that starting center spot. Uh, Hassan did have a, a bout with COVID or at least health and safety protocols uh, from what we know that, that held him out for a while that kind of disrupted uh, disrupted his rhythm a little bit. And then the Sacramento Kings, at least offensively, are a team when you have De'Aaron Fox on your roster, you want to play fast. You want to play up-tempo. And that is not the game of Hassan Whiteside. It might have been back in the day. Uh, it's not anymore. The man moves like he's stuck in molasses, whether he's on the perimeter or, or in the paint. Now, he did do what the Kings asked him to do in limited uh, stretches well, which is block shots and just be a presence on the interior, but not enough for him to command as much playing time as maybe we all expected. So do you think it's a significant pickup, decent pickup, or waste of time pickup for the Jazz? I, I I have a hard time believing that anything Hassan Whiteside does for the rest of his career at this point is going to be significant. Um, I, I think it can be a decent pickup in the sense that when when um, Rudy Gobert goes out of the game, you're not having a significant or the, uh, like, like a massive defensive drop off uh, when he's coming in to back things up. He does very very well at at, at, at protecting the rim and being that presence in the paint. But if he's going to match up against a, a modern NBA big who is capable of spacing the floor. You'll notice very quickly, Hassan won't step further beyond the top of the key. He just doesn't go out there. So you, you can't play him against a, a Denver Nuggets with Nikola Jokic. Uh, you, can't, you just can't play him uh, guarding a modern NBA big. You couldn't play him against the Bucks with Brooke Lopez because uh, they'll, just, they'll just space the floor on him and pull him out of the paint where he's at his most effective. So it's not entirely clear how Quinn Snyder is going to play the Jazz non-Gobert minutes. And Gobert's probably good for 35 minutes, so that leaves 13 minutes a game. And they might, you know, there's been talk about 
you, you put several forwards out there. Rudy Gay gets his time, and, and you play without the traditional center. In which case, Whiteside's role gets tiny to non-existent. Uh, but when he is in the game, backing up Gobert, when Gobert sits down, isn't the opposing team just going to put him in a pick and roll every time? Yeah, I imagine uh, that's that's going to be the the approach. That's certainly the approach most teams had uh, when when he was in the game for Sacramento. Uh, in the event that that they do try and attack the basket, work their way into the paint, Hassan's white uh, his his presence down there is still very significant. I mean, he can he can block shots easily. He changes shots. He disrupts shots. So in a lot of ways, the Kings who have lacked that shot blocking, uh, or they lacked it a lot going into last season, it was a breath of fresh air having Hassan's presence there alone. The problem is, in the modern NBA, like you mentioned, it's really easy to, to, to handle that. It's really easy to pull a big man away from the basket now with just basic spacing. And, and yeah, uh, pick and rolls, all you have to do is get him to switch on a smaller guard. Uh, and like I said, he's either going to give you all the space in the world to shoot, or if he does step out on you, you're going right by him with a quick jab step. So it's not too easy to break down and defeat Hassan, which is why I question just his overall ability to be effective in large stretches uh, in, the, in the NBA for the remainder of his career. Well, I guess the argument would be he's not going to play large stretches and he's going to play against second-team guys. And if there's a bunch of big men who can step out on pick-and-rolls and all, they'd be starters anyway. So the guys he's going up against should be okay. I mean, that's one argument. I, I And I understand that completely. If, if the Jazz and Quinn Snyder can find a way to effectively use Whiteside in, his, in where he's comfortable, keep him in the paint, keep him doing what he does best, I think he can be an asset uh, for the Utah Jazz. And, and like you said, in those limited minutes, in those small stretches, one to two to three minutes while Rudy Gobert gets some rest, the rim protection doesn't drop off at all. If, if anything, it might, well, I'm not going to go as far as to say it goes up a little bit because Gobert is Rudy Gobert, but it, you're not losing a lot in terms of rim protection and rebounding as well. I mean, he, he can secure the glass just with his size alone. Um, it's just, honestly, it's the mobility that's the biggest question mark and forever will be for me. Jazz fans are uh, are craving a championship. When you handicap the West, looking at all the moves, Sacramento's got a lot of building to do, so you don't really have a dog in the hunt right now. What do you think? I like the Utah Jazz a lot. It was very, very easy for me to root for the Utah Jazz. I'm also a huge Donovan Mitchell fan, and I'm still regretting. I regret a lot of Sacramento Kings drafts, but uh, regretting not taking Mitchell at 10 uh, when you had both 5 and 10 in the De'Aaron Fox draft is still painful to me, that being said. Tyrese Halliburton being here, Davion Mitchell. I like what the Kings are doing, but when you make the, miss the playoffs for 15 straight years, it's hard to have too much optimism that, oh, this will be the year. We've been saying that for over a decade. Uh, but in terms of the Utah Jazz, uh, I, I like the way they're built. I'm very pleased, at least from my perspective, that uh, the rumored issues, which might have been a bigger thing, you can tell me this more than I can tell you, outside of, of Utah than inside the, the issues or disconnect between Davion Mitchell or rather Donovan Mitchell, excuse me, uh, and Rudy Gobert. I'm, I'm glad those issues seem to work themselves out. Big fan of uh, Quinn Snyder as well. I like what the Utah Jazz are doing, uh, and I was rooting for them to make a big run. Now, it was fun for the Phoenix Suns to be the Cinderella story that they were, but Utah was the best team in the West for a reason. Uh, I expect them to be right back there, and I always enjoy every time we get to see them and, and come to Sacramento because I always put up a good show for Kings fans who haven't seen winning in quite some time. <laughs> 
How about Whiteside's ability? We know he can block shots, but his ability to go up, try to block a shot, maybe he alters the shot so it's not blocked, but then about his ability to able to get himself in the position to rebound. Yeah. To be honest with you, I'm trying to come up with a, like a memory in my mind of, of a play where that happened. Altering shots for sure. Uh, it's honestly he does it more than he actually blocks shots. And altering right. shots around the rim can be just as effective, if if not even more effective, as long as you're staying out of foul trouble. If if the if the ball is anywhere remotely in his vicinity, coming off of a rim, he's probably going to get it just with his length alone and his physical presence. I didn't realize like how girthy Hassan Whiteside was when oh, until I saw him in person coming back to Sacramento. He certainly put it on weight. So he's not an easy guy to push around. So if he gets position, more than likely he's securing the rebound. The problem is if the, if the ball comes off the rim um, in any which direction and it's a long rebound, more than likely he's, he's not getting to it um, just because of his speed. And I think what will frustrate um, some Utah Jazz fans is there will be a rebound, a 50-50 ball that he probably could get that he just won't give the maximum effort to secure. There are going to be a handful of those that could result in second-chance opportunities and second-chance points uh, for Utah's opponent that will probably drive Quinn Snyder, the two of you, and everybody else uh, just crazy. We have agreed the use of the word girthy during this interview makes this a smashing success. Good work, Matt. <laughs> no, no problem, guys. Thank you so much for having me, and cheers from Sacramento. And uh, hopefully the, the Kings can be, can be number two in the West and the Jazz can be number one. But, hey, we'll dream. Hey, uh, before we <laughs> let you go, uh, Keda was a star at Utah State. Where does he fit in with the Kings? You know, it's it's funny. I had um, Rafael Barlow, who's one of our draft experts on my Locked on Kings podcast recently, and Rafael said on draft night that he thought that Keita could be the Kings' starting center. Now, this was before they had re-signed and re-secured Rashawn Holmes and then gone out gotten Alex Len, Tristan Thompson, and suddenly the Kings go from no backcourt or frontcourt depth to a crap ton of frontcourt depth. Um but we still had a conversation on my podcast a couple of days ago, and we believe Kata is is a, a, a good asset to potentially crack the Kings rotation. And what's crazy is I asked Kings general manager Monty McNair about Kata and him falling to 39, and then he said he couldn't believe how under the radar a natural seven-footer who was an analytical darling like Kata averaged double-double and scoring a very efficient score also like 3.3 blocks, uh, almost two steals a game. He didn't understand how a player like that could slide so far. Maybe it's it's because he's a natural seven-footer in the modern NBA, maybe because he's a little bit older. Uh, who knows? But I absolutely love him. I love what I've seen uh, in, in summer league so far. Certainly has some rust to work on, but the footwork is already significantly better than some of the bigs the Kings have pit- taken in recent history. And on top of that, for a natural seven-footer, thing, the opposite of Hassan Whiteside, his mobility on the perimeter has been a lot better than what I expected. Uh, So I'm excited. He has a two-way contract. He'll get good opportunity, plenty of playing time uh, with the G League Stockton Kings. But I expect him to get minutes and and provide a lot of what the Kings have been lacking that maybe they were hoping Hassan Whiteside could provide last season. Matt, we appreciate the time. Thanks for joining us. Good luck with the podcast. I appreciate it. It's a pleasure, guys. Happy to do it again. There's Matt George, Locked on Kings. Coming up next, our tour of the Pac-12 takes us to Oregon. 
Ryan Thorburn, the register guard in Eugene. How good is Oregon? A big test for the Utes, along with USC and ASU. We'll find out next. Stay with us. Take the zone with you wherever you go. Let's go. Download the all-new Zone Sports Network app on your phone and get live streaming of the zone as well as podcast editions of every show. From Salt Lake to Shanghai, Provo to Portugal, or Ogden to Oslo, wherever you go, we'll tag along. Let's go. Download the new Zone app by searching Zone Sports Network wherever you shop for apps. It's the Zone Sports Network app. From 97.5, 1280, The Zone, and The Zone Sports Network. DJ and PK brought to you in part by Syringa Networks. Working from home or with a hybrid workforce, get a powerful IT partner with Syringa Networks. Call them at 385-420-7881 or visit syringanetworks.net. We're joined now by Ryan Thorburn. He covers the Oregon Ducks. He's the beat writer for the Register Guard in Eugene, Oregon. He joins us on the Smart Rain guest line. It's no secret that Utah's in an extreme drought. That's why Smart Rain is a solution for any commercial property. Concerned about water consumption while managing irrigation. Find out more at Smart Rain. Net. Ryan, good morning. Good morning. Thanks for having me. So I guess the first question right out of the gate is the Ducks and the playoff talk, is it too much hype or can they pull this off? I don't think it's too much hype just in the sense that Mario Cristobal has stacked together three top ten recruiting classes and they have uh, a list of key super seniors back so they have the experience, they have the talent, they have depth at every position. Uh, obviously, winning at Ohio State is something that the Pac-12 could really use for the Ducks to go ahead and do that and get in the mix from the get-go. That's a really a tall task when you look at you know Ohio State stacked together, you know top five recruiting classes for years and years. So, uh, you know I I don't see that happening in terms of beating Ohio State in the horseshoe, but they do have the talent in place to give it a run for sure. So we heard uh, after Friday's practice that Cristobal addressed the suspensions of safety uh, Jamal Hill and DJ James. Uh, apparently they were shooting airsoft guns at people from a car. Uh, I don't know what that's about, uh, but what type of penalty is for, in terms of duration is that going to be? Yeah, obviously uh, really a bad start to, to fall camp. That actually happened. Uh, that incident happened. Hours after their media day on Tuesday, it happened late Tuesday night. So both those players are projected starters and both are suspended indefinitely. I'd be surprised if they're in the Ohio State game. I mean, those are that's a pretty bonehead thing to do. It's pretty serious. You know, one person is allegedly hit in the face. You know, I don't know a lot about airsoft guns other than they kind of look like a real gun and it's probably like a modern-day BB gun. So... Uh, not the way you want to start camp. You know, as I mentioned, I think DJ James, who had two interceptions in the Pac-12 championship game, is one of their top five most talented players. He played the nickel, replaced Javon Holland, who's an NFL player now, seamlessly. And uh, Ohio State has the best wide receiving core in the nation. So really an ominous start. Oregon has depth, like I mentioned, and they have young guys behind them that are you know, touting guys, but that's definitely a hit to lose two starters right off the bat. And we'll see what that suspension ends up being once, you know, they're arraigned and, and the severity of the charges are, you know, either reduced or, or as they are now. So 
PK was a writer for the Salt Lake Tribune for a long time, beat writer, and but covered different teams at Utah and BYU, football and basketball. And some of the teams there were sometimes problems behind the scenes. I guess loosely they'd be called discipline issues, but some of them were even bigger than that. Is this a team, because you're there and you're in Eugene, you're not in Portland trying to cover the team, but you're in Eugene, is this like a one-off and, and way out of character for this team? Or is there a chance that stuff could happen like this down the road that, you know, it's a little loose behind the scenes? What's your perception of it? Yeah, I mean, you never know when you have 118 guys or whatever they have at camp. You know, the odds are there's going to be one or two that that mess up. I mean, if you were just sample 100 random college students, that's going to happen. Um, these are young people that do dumb things. But I don't sense that there's any discipline issues overall in, in the game. I think you sense that in 2016, Helfrich's last team did not have good chemistry. They had a bunch of off-the-stuff and once the off-the-field stuff and once the season started going south, you could feel like there was just no hope of pulling out of it. I think this is a one-off, like you said, and uh, you know, definitely a serious incident and definitely something that's going to impact the defense. But you know, I think Mario Cristobal has a pretty tight grasp on what's going on in the program. Yeah, I think it's a blow, but when you got guys like Wright and McKinley back there defensively, and then you've got somebody by the name of uh, Thibodeau in quarterbacks' faces virtually every play, I don't know if it's a fatal blow. And and a strong linebacking core there, and I can argue, you talked about Ohio State having the best receiving, and I can argue that the linebacking core at Oregon which includes one of our local guys here, Sewell, that they're going to be fine defensively. Yeah, and and on the flip side, you know, Ohio State has four, you know, elite recruits that they haven't thrown a pass in college yet. The winner of that will have one game under his belt, and Kayvon Thibodeau is going to be putting a lot of pressure on that person. Yeah. Uh, you mentioned Noah Sewell, an inside linebacker, a five-star recruit. Now his buddy Justin Flo, who missed last year with a, a knee injury, is probably going to be alongside him, another five-star recruit. Um, those two are among the top recruits Oregon's ever had behind Thibodeau. So their front seven should be really good. Mikhail Wright is a shutdown cornerback, and Ron McKinley is one of the smartest safeties. And, and these uh, two recruiting classes that haven't really played much football, it's like they have a, one giant freshman class you know, with last year being so strange, um, including a, a five-star cornerback, uh, Dante Manning. You know, talent is not the issue, and Tim DeRuiter has a history of improving defenses, so they should be better than they were last year on defense. So at quarterback, they're going to rely on a transfer who has had two knee injuries that have uh, ended seasons. Um, what are the reviews on Anthony Brown when you're close to the program? Yeah, I think Anthony Brown is is the wild card in all of this. You know, I think whether they're a playoff caliber team or a Pac-12 championship team or a disappointment is going to come down to how Anthony Brown plays. They're not going to ask him to to carry the water. He's just got to manage things. But he's a a sixth-year senior, Boston College transfer, who, you know, wasn't really able to get in the mix last camp because he was not in the program during the spring and then everything was shut down and, Pac-12 was so limited in practice that Tyler Shuck, you know, held on to that off of four spring practices and limited 
uh, fall camp. So Tyler Shuck has transferred to Texas Tech. Um, I wouldn't say that Anthony Brown is a better quarterback than Tyler Shuck, but he could be a better fit for what Joe Moorhead does with his system. How about Ty Thompson in that quarterback race? Because I think that he might be the most talented of the three, including Butterfield. There's no question that, you know, he's a guy that fans are, are really excited about. Uh, one of the highest recruited quarterbacks, if not the highest recruited quarterback they've ever had. Um, he was in during spring, which helps. He looked, you know, obviously to be several steps behind Brown and even behind uh, their 2020 quarterbacks, uh, Robbie Ashford and Jay Butterfield. But, you know, it's only a matter of time until uh, a player of that caliber either wins the job or transfers in today's day and age. So uh, it would be interesting if Anthony Brown were to perform, you know, poorly and, and be the reason they didn't beat Ohio State. The next week they have Stony Brook. Do you throw one of the young guys in there and just go with the future? Uh, that'll be uh, an interesting situation for sure. So do they just need average quarterback play because the wide receivers are so good? I mean, you got a 6'5 target just – don't screw this up. He's 6'5". It's a pretty big catch radius for Devin Williams. Yeah, I don't think it's just about the quarterback because, you know, some of these receivers and running backs, you know, Johnny Johnson, Jalen Red, Micah Pittman, um, a lot of them have been around, and the running backs too, C.J. Verdell and Dye, they've been around, and they're the same guys that Justin Herbert was working with. And, you know, now you hear the NFL scouts saying, well, Herbert didn't have any NFL guys that he was working with at skill positions. There's one reason he was maybe downgraded coming out. So they have a lot of the same guys. So I think it is a, how many of these true freshmen that look like more of the NFL type of prospects can supplant these seniors and, and have an impact on the team. I think that'll be key. We saw, you know, a couple of these wide receivers just show out in the spring game. It'll be really interesting to see if they – can mix and match the experience with the, the young talent, which is, you know, a, a higher quality of athlete. You think Washington is the toughest competition in the North? Yeah, I think Washington clearly is, is the toughest team in the North besides Oregon. That game's in Seattle. Um, that's the thing about Oregon as far as the playoff that makes it tough is all of their marquee games are on the road. When you look at Ohio State, Washington, UCLA against Chip Kelly, and then Utah. You know, there's there's just it's hard to imagine them not stubbing their toe once or twice there. So uh, that rivalry is obviously going to be spiced up even more than normal with Washington not being able to play the game last year and uh, forfeiting the North Division title or at least the Pac-12 championship game entry to their rival because of COVID. So uh, I, I don't think either team uh, is happy with the other the way 2020 played out. Come on, those two teams are never happy with each other. <laughs> no, not really. Uh, I think the Pac-12 needs to root for any team, whether they hate them or not, to make the playoff. But yeah, for sure, uh, that Husky uh, rivalry is going to be interesting with Jimmy Lake. You know, he, he's a guy who brings it on defense and is trying to upgrade their recruiting and Mario Cristobal uh, recruits every day of the year at a high level so it should be good for years to come. How much do you think the teams that miss teams 
on the schedule is going to factor into Pac-12 race because you've got Oregon missing ASU and SC. So that's the first and third teams in the South. Then you got Washington, or excuse me, you got SC misses Oregon and Washington, who's first and second projected anyway. So I'm wondering, man, if the schedule maker, the way it just plays out as in the rotation, could end up having a fair amount of impact. Yeah, on paper, I think that's why Oregon and USC are picked again is, you know, they don't play each other during the regular season and they miss some of the other powers from the, the other opposite division. So, you know, on paper, I get that. I just think, you know, you just never know. I think Chip Kelly's going to have something to say about Oregon as well. Um, they have to go down to L.A. to play them. And uh, even though Utah has to play Oregon, it's at home in November that could be, uh, you know, that could swing the thing where it could be Utah Washington instead of Oregon SC. Just if the Utah is able to beat Oregon, so you just never know. But um, yeah, on paper, you know, I voted Oregon USC because that's I look at the schedules as much as anything else. Ryan Thorburn joining us, Oregon Ducks beat writer for the Register Guard in Eugene, Oregon. With the Oklahoma-Texas announcement, there's been plenty of speculation about super conferences. Who else does the SEC want to add? Is the Big Ten going to try to take the top teams out of the Pac-12? How serious is that talk in, in Eugene, and how would Oregon officials receive any of that? Well, right now, Rob Mullins is trying to, you know, I think his stance is that it's very early in, in George K. Um, I haven't mastered the last name yet. The new Pac-12 commissioner's <laughs> tenure, and you know the timing of that. You know they're trying to just get on the same page with the new Pac-12 commissioner right now, and and I think if all 12 teams are on the same page, I don't see any way they're going to add any of these hateful eight, big eight leftovers. I don't think they add anything to the conference really. So it's a matter of. I think what we're seeing nationwide is it's all about the big brands and are the big brands happy. So I think if USC is on board with the Pac-12, things are going to be okay. If they want to go independent or maybe join the Big Ten, then then we've, there's a problem out on the West Coast. So uh, I think the key over the next few years as this thing unfolds is you know what's best for USC and to a lesser degree Oregon as a national brand also. Well, Ryan, we appreciate the time. Thanks for joining us, and we'll look forward to that uh, Utah-Oregon game uh, in November. Thanks for coming on. All right. Thanks, guys. There's Ryan Thorburn from the Register Guard in Eugene, Oregon, talking duck football. Coming up next, the radio voice of the BYU Cougars, Greg Rubel. Stay with us. Take the zone with you wherever you go. Let's go. Download the all-new Zone Sports Network app on your phone and get live streaming of the zone as well as podcast editions of every show. From Salt Lake to Shanghai, Provo to Portugal, or Ogden to Oslo, wherever you go, we'll tag along. Let's go. Download the new Zone app by searching Zone Sports Network wherever you shop for apps. It's the Zone Sports Network app. From 97.5, 1280, The Zone, and The Zone Sports Network. DJ and PK, time to talk with the voice of the Cougars, Greg Rebell. He joins us on the Smart Rain guest line. It's no secret that Utah's in an extreme drought. That's why Smart Rain is a solution for any commercial property concerned about water consumption while managing irrigation. Find out more at smartrain.net. Greg, good morning. 
Good morning, and I'm glad you let me in with that because we all believe, all of us, in the spirit of radio. <laughs> Good work. I like it. So, do you believe in this BYU football team? You feel a big year coming on? Feel a good but not great year coming on? In the words of Gordon Monson, where are you? How are you hanging on? I'm in a good spot. I'm in a good headspace, guys. Uh, I, I, I feel it can be a really good season. I, I, I think last year, BYU did exactly as much as you hoped it would do with the schedule uh, that the Cougars had to play and came a yard away from something pretty darn special. But 11-1 and one, uh, was, I, I thought, you know, everything and, and then some you could have hoped last year's team could do. Uh, this year's team may not reach the 11-win plateau, yet still be um, the same kind of caliber and same kind of quality. And you say that having lost, you know, draft picks to the NFL, multiple draft picks to the NFL. But if you have to lose the number two overall pick at quarterback, uh, you're in a pretty good spot with the guys you have back surrounding the quarterbacks competing for the job this fall. The way I look at this season, get your thought on that, that this is very, very important for the progression of the program because this is Coach Sataki's sixth year in BYU. We know recruiting classes take a while to get to campus, and then once they get to campus, it takes some time for them to get into shape to be able to play. But six years is long enough, and so they took a giant step last year, and you can argue the schedule, but the NFL proved that they took a giant step. So with that in mind, how important do you think that that this season is in terms of establishing a program? Well, not only is it important, but I think it's, it's very illustrative that you have a similar situation starting year six that you had in year one. And so you can make a real kind of, um, you know, a real strong measurement from, from year one to year six by, by how the season begins. Um, back in 2016, Kalani's first year, they opened against Arizona uh, on a neutral field in NFL Stadium, won that game, uh, came back and played Utah in their second game. This year, they have the same situation. They go to Vegas, play Arizona in the Raiders Stadium. They're expected to win that game. They won the game in 2016. Then you come back and you play Utah. And that, to me, becomes the, the, the true barometer as to where this team is from then to now, is, is presuming you have success in the opener, how do you bounce back against the team that has been your nemesis for a decade plus? And, and how much more competitive are you? Can you finally break the streak? It, it'll say a lot about the program in how the seasons begin. And furthermore, uh, back in 2016, having beaten Arizona, lost to Utah, they played a Pac-12 team in their next game and lost that game and then lost the next game. And there they were one and three in Kalani's first four games and then rebounded well for a nine-win season. Now, hopefully, the same not need to re- the same need to rebound isn't there this time around. But you know, I, I think you can say if there's progress made, and there has been progress made, BYU is not going to be one and three through four games this year. So, as Kalani tries to build a uh, bigger, longer, more athletic roster, what position group do you think is most likely to dominate and give them an edge this year? Well, I. I think the tight end is as good as it's been. Uh, even if you just account for the top two guys right now, uh, I think Isaac Rex and Dallin Holker is the, are as dynamic a tight end duo as BYU's had in many, many years. And then when you counter that with the fact that uh, the receiving core is essentially back from last year, minus Dax Milne, Gunnar Romney was still a guy that led the team in, 
in yards per reception, yards per target, a good downfield target. Neil Pau is, is, is size and speed and catchability. I, I don't think, again, having lost to Zach Wilson, lost to Dax Milne, you're not really starting over at either quarterback or wide receiver. And so between tight end and wide receiver with Romney and Pau, Cosper was, was used liberally last year for his role. The Nakua, the, uh, the, the Nakua brothers entered the scene. Chris Jackson and Keanu Hill are still in the mix. Uh, they're deep enough and good enough to, to surround the quarterback with, with all the tools he needs to succeed. And then you're not even talking about a 1,000-yard running back and the guys behind him uh, in the backfield. So I, I guess I'm saying it shows up all over the offense right now, uh, around the quarterback and the guys will be handing it off to and throwing it to. And you, you do lose a draft pick on the offensive line. They're, they're retooling a little bit there. But I really think, guys, they feel they've got six guys to play five up front and feel really good about maybe a seventh right now offensive lineman. And, and if, if, if health can, can be with them on the O-line, I, I can't see them dropping a ton from last year's productivity up front. Then how about on the other side, what's your level of expectation and confidence? Well, certainly nationally, you know, the attention is going to BYU's offense. I mean, you know, if you want to use, you know, watch lists as a, as a barometer, and that's tough to do because everybody gets on a watch list these days, right? Uh, essentially, the only, the only guy garnering any heat defensively right now is Peyton Wilgar, and for good reasons. But I'm fairly confident that by the end of the year, uh, you know, Peyton Wilgar won't be the only standout on this BYU defense. I, I, th- I think the versatility and strength in numbers on the D-line might take away from IDing any one particular player as a stud, but Tyler Batty certainly has an opportunity to be that guy up front. He was, I think he was at three sacks through four games last year. He only played four games and still ended up as one of BYU's top uh, pressure and hurry and, and, and havoc guys last year. So a healthy season for Tyler Batty could mean a special season on the D-line. The linebacking core, I think, has been properly ID'd as a real strength of this team. But uh, I, I think Keenan Ellis and D'Angelo Mandel are a really nice pair of starting corners uh, for BYU as well. So they're not getting a lot of attention. I think it's been more slow and steady than spectacular, maybe numerically, for Coach Itake's defense and Coach uh, uh, Tuiaki's defense. But, uh, you know, they, they can ramp it up when they have to. I think they choose a lot of times not to, but you can't argue with the results. I mean, BYU was as good as any team in the country last year, guys, at preventing the big play. Now, you could argue that last year's opponents weren't necessarily the, the, the laundry list of big playmakers, but there were good, you know, there, there were at least challenges last year that were met adequately. And that's been a real strength of BYU is not letting a lot of big plays and big yards per play, chunk plays, explosive plays beat you. There's a lot made of Power 5 teams on BYU's schedule, but all Power 5 teams are not created equal, and BYU has shown that they are pretty good at handling the bottom of the Power 5 and decent against the middle of the Power 5. So I guess that leads to question, who is truly elite and going to provide a challenge, and which of these Power 5 teams do you think BYU is going to have an upper hand on? Well, I, I, I think, uh, obviously, the, the top three picks in the Pac-12 South are the ones that are projected to give BYU the most trouble. Uh, you know, to me, Utah is tougher than USC just because it's Utah, and it has been for years. Uh, it's, it's the hurdle BYU is at a real tough time confronting. And, and the, 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 the problem with the Utah series, the way it's gone, isn't just that you lose all these games. It's that you essentially you've lost in, in every possible way. Uh, you've lost when turning it over. You've lost when not turning it over. You've lost when trailing early. You've lost with big leads. You, you've really, you, you've not been able to identify the one thing that if we do this right, 
we can beat this team we haven't beaten forever because it's happened in every possible way. So to me, Utah is still right at the top. Uh, USC may be ranked higher, thought of higher, but Utah is still uh, you know, the, the, the toughest team BYU will play. Uh, Utah, USC, Arizona State, I, I think it's okay to say one, two, three, uh, the, the three toughest teams of the P5s, uh, you know, all, all P5s not being created equal. You get a couple of bottom-dweller picks, at least, in Washington State and Arizona, and then you get kind of middle-of-the-pack Big 12 and Baylor, and then Virginia could be a middle-of-the-pack in the ACC. So you're kind of hitting all – you're hitting, you know, you know, kind of the elite teams in their league, kind of bottom-dwellers in their league, and then middle-packers in their league. So there's really a kind of a random sampling for BYU to see – you know, where they should be. You've got games you're expected to lose, games you're really expected to win, and then I think toss-ups right in the middle. And so it, it could go, at, you know, any way with those seven P5s this year with the real strength at the top being being Utah. Stepping away from this season, you know, with Oklahoma and Texas leaving to the SEC, we know that that just creates a whole lot of uncertainty. Uh, what do you think needs to happen for BYU as these things, not just this move from the 12 to the SEC, but obviously there's going to be fallout and domino effects. So what do you think BYU needs to do to make sure that it's in a good spot when this particular set of circumstances settles, even if it's three or four years, five years down the road? Well, I actually think that, that the groundwork's been laid, PK. I think BYU's done what it has to do to be in a good spot. And, and not that they lack initiative or ambition in this situation, but they can kind of afford to let some things happen around them and, and see where the best opportunities present themselves when, when the dust settles again. I, I think they've proven through independence that it's it may be more sustainable than maybe some imagined. Um, you can still be an independent like BYU. You can still have your entire P5 schedule crumble around you you can still find a way to be an 11-win team in a 12-win pandemic season and get back on the national radar. I, I think games like the, the one they'll play in Las Vegas uh, is another good opportunity for BYU to not you know, show, but perhaps remind some people of where they are kind of in a national landscape in terms of the ability to either attract eyeballs or fill seats away from their home stadium, home city, and home state. Uh, I think BYU is going to uh, you know, dominate the crowd composition down in Las Vegas. Um, uh, you, know, you know, commission, uh, you know, conferences and networks will continue to take notice of, of what BYU can do uh, on a national setting. And and I think you know, you know, parenthetically, uh, from from venue uh, improvements, facilities to internal programs uh, to things BYU's done over the last just five years, I think all show that the Cougars are positioning themselves as a program. Uh, you know, to be highly considered if somebody chooses to reconfigure, you know, their their particular group here in the next few years. I, I just think that, you know, you know, things like the the Learfield Directors Cup, which kind of take a look at where you are as an overall program, continue to show, you know, that BYU is not a one-trick pony and can be nationally consistent in a variety of sports. And I think the things that that tend to hang people up a little bit about BYU are, are the other things. Uh, that really aren't athletics related, and I think if, if anyone were to make a purely you know pragmatic, pragmatic, and even academic decision on BYU, um, you know it, it's it's just this side of a no-brainer as to what kind of value they might bring, uh, you know, to a conference, no matter what you know grouping we're talking about moving forward, whether it's truly just you know P5 conferences or whether it's new imaginations of college football altogether. Greg Rubel joining us. 
BYU Cougar play-by-play voice. You know, you've been pretty clear about the rivalry on the field, and we're going to play something for you here in a second from uh, Kyle Whittingham. But before we do that, I'm, I'm curious about where you think the rivalry is as far as the emotion uh, between the fans and in the fan base. You know, when it was the last game of the season, that just lends itself to this huge buildup. And now, no matter what happens, well, there's going to be 10 more games afterwards. It, it can't be the ultimate thing when there's still 10 games to go. So, aside from the on-field stuff, how do you think the rivalry exists in the minds of you know, the fans and the players and all of that? It still feels pretty healthy, and, and I think I think too you have to look also to the emphasis the particular programs you know place on the game, and that's where I think where it's really told. And I think it's still as highly emphasized as ever, um, and, and and that's important to me. And and you know Utah, I, I think you know can can rightfully no matter how things are going at other points in their schedule, you know point to the fact that that the in-state rivalry has has gone their way for a decade plus and that and that's significant and and BYU conversely uh without a championship to play for and and ideally rankings to strive for still has to look at getting back in the rivalry as something that that indicates you know progress and success and they haven't had it for a long long time and so I think that would mean a lot, you know, for BYU to get, you know, to swing it back the other way or at least attempt to start to swing it back the other way. We've seen over time, guys, as you know, that these things have been, you know, somewhat cyclical to the extreme. This is about at the outside edge of where either team could have a win streak at nine or ten games. It rarely gets beyond that. And and so um, I, I'm sure the Cougar fans are hoping that the cyclical nature of it, even though it's been stretched out over a decade plus, begins to come back into equilibrium from a BYU standpoint. All right, here's the bite from uh, Kyle Whittingham doing an interview. Listen, and uh, then your reaction. Can you tell us three nice things about your rival? Uh, who's our rival? We got rivals in conference. We got rivals out of conference. Uh, you you know, doggone well. I'm talking about BYU. Oh, that, uh, the in-state game. Okay, gotcha. <laughs> Uh, well, it's it, the dynamic has changed so much. Really? Yeah, because uh, you know they're no longer in the same conference. We were in the same conference for ever, you know, right. 60, 70, 80 years. I can't remember what it was, but but uh, so it's changed, and and we've started to develop a, a little bit of a rivalry with uh, USC, Colorado, mm-hmm. Arizona State. I mean, there's just been some some things that are starting to uh, materialize inside the Pac-12, and so uh, that's why I asked that question. But I get you. But uh, yeah, let's skip to the next question. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I don't know how to address it i don't know which way to go with it thoughts well i would say kyle's being coy i think i think a little bit of a rivalry is accurate compared to the 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 decades of history against byu and you know i mean it's a real thing i mean kyle cares about not only beating byu but never having lost to byu in more than a decade and and you know whether it's countdown clocks in the facility or otherwise it matters always has and, and always will and so, again, I think there's a level of coyness there, but that's okay. I mean, it, it's, it's, it's okay for them to, um, to project toward the Pac-12 and say this is, you know, we've kind of left certain components of our, of our past behind and are, and are aiming this direction. That's okay, and that's, and that's reasonable, and that's logical, and, and I get it. But uh, BYU is still BYU to the Utes, and I think uh, it'll always be that way. You think it's the biggest game on BYU's schedule? I think a lot within that program, believe it is. Yeah, fair enough. Because, because, because I think they kind of drew a line in the sand uh, more than a decade ago. And so far that line has stayed intact. And, and, and so with every year that, 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 you know, 
that that belief that we're not going to lose these guys again for every year that that extends, I think it continues to, to matter and mean more to that extent that we haven't, you know, we're not going to lose again and they haven't lost again, that, 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 that kind of thing. What level of confidence do you think the fan base has in Kalani to pull off a big season or big seasons when they take a bigger view going forward? Uh, uh, I, I, say it again. Uh, I'm, I'm curious what level you think, and, and the reason is that the follow-up to this is, um, you know, how much faith does the football administration have above him, the athletic department administration above him, and the leadership above Tom have in Kalani? And I'm curious how much the fan base has in Kalani, if they're aligned, if they're on the same plane. Oh God! You know, I'm 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 only speculating as to what the highest of higher ups believe. But but how, how could you not be pleased with not only um, the success of the program, just in terms of wins and losses? Um, you know, the, the national image that BYU projects and the Kalani projects, um, the affability that that naturally you get with Kalani, um, his ability to to interact with and express appreciation for the fan base. I think fans love Kalani. I do. I I, I think media loves Kalani. I I would I would be hard pressed to think of somebody that doesn't think favorably and highly of of Kalani. Um, I I think he is in a lot of ways a reflection of his mentor and his head coach Lavelle Edwards in, in many ways. They're not identical personalities by any stretch, but there are a lot of components of each of those gentlemen that I think uh, reflect very well uh, with one another. And uh, again, the wins are there. You have one dip season in five years when you're trying to rebuild and figure out coaching personnel. That's clearly forgivable. I I think with what they were able to do with last year's season, how they put people in the NFL, uh, the general trajectory uh, of the program, how it looks, how it feels, how it sounds on game day, I I, I think BYU is in as positive a spot as they could hope to be in. And, And the guy leading it, to me, is the right guy at the right time. And as you can tell, I mean, I, I, I clearly am a big fan of Kalani myself personally. I've had enough interactions with him since his playing days through now working with him as a broadcaster and him being the cat coach that uh, just makes my job so easy. Um, I, I, I know that fans love him for a lot of good and genuine and real reasons. And I'm just so glad that, uh, you know, he is directing this program right now that I get to cover. Greg, as always, good to talk to you. And uh, everything will start ramping up here for you shortly. It'll be nonstop. As always, gentlemen, it is my pleasure. Uh, you work with the great Yacht. And, and seeing Jake on, on a relatively, if not daily, weekly basis in Provo uh, is, is a joy. And uh, you guys have a good one, as you know. And you guys are good ones, uh, as everyone knows, and uh, always good to be with you. There's Greg Rubel, the radio voice of the BYU Cougars. When we come back, what is trending? All the headlines. Stay with us.